Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. This week, Natasha Engel, former Labour MP for North East Derbyshire and former Deputy Speaker for the House of Commons, discusses with Graham Stewart about the shift to online Parliament and why we should be wary about making it a permanent change. Also, Professor Jeremy Black considers how the current crisis has affected universities and what this means for their futures. Natasha, welcome to, to The Critic podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, not at all. Um, you've been Deputy Speaker of the House of Commons uh, back in the day, back in the day when it was all done face to face. Now circumstances demand a different approach. Um, you're, you're sceptical about how this will work, but really it, it's, hi- it's a hybrid parliament, isn't it? There'll be, there'll be some MPs in the chamber, but most sitting at home uh, trying to get the right angle in of the back of their bookcases uh, for, for, for the Zoom call. Is, is this hybrid system going to work, or is it the, the worst of both worlds? Well, I, I sincerely hope it does work, because I think um, under the current circumstances where parliaments can't physically meet, um, I mean, it's really the only thing that they can do. And I think at the moment it's probably more important than ever that there is um, you know, a certain level of scrutiny over the decisions that the government is taking. Um, so I think it's really important to make sure that it does work. And there will be technical glitches and it will go wrong. And I'm sure there'll be moments of hilarity, but um, they're just going to have to make it work. I mean, the, my only problem was that um, I think that there will be a sort of a group of people who will see this as an opportunity to usher in a virtual parliament in the longer term. And my worry is that, um, you know, we don't really fully appreciate, and maybe this will make us appreciate, we don't fully appreciate the physicality of Parliament and why that's so important um, and that people's physical presence in Parliament and the fact that you've got 650 members from various constituencies around the country all coming together and discuss the matters of the day, I think is something that is really important and I hope we don't lose that in our sort of switch over to Zoom. Aren't you just uh, an incurable romantic for, for the old days? Um, you know, the, world, the world has moved on and there's, there's no reason after the coronavirus crisis passes, as hopefully it will, uh, that um, MPs shouldn't uh, vote from either their office or their constituency or the comfort and informality of their, of their living room. It's perfectly possible. And, you know, there are all sorts of different things like, you know, for example, Big Brother and there's other TV shows where people vote remotely and it works perfectly well. Um, so it's not, it's not that it doesn't work. It's the fact that we lose so much by not doing it in person. Um, and I think that one, one, one of the really big issues is about the significance of what it is that people do as MPs in Parliament. And I think all of that would be lost. I mean, for starters, if you were voting just online, I mean, there's absolutely no way of knowing whether it was you who was voting or one of your researchers or, you know, one of your children or, you know, anybody but you could be voting. You've just got absolutely no way of verifying that. Um, and, you know, again, maybe on the less significant votes, um, that isn't so important. But the actual physical being there and that, you know, your 
your constituents know that it is you who is voting on their behalf. It is you who must take the responsibility. And if they don't like the way that you vote, it's you that they vote at at the, at the end of the parliament. So I think it's really important that it is done, certainly voting is done in person. Well, voting is done in person, but, but uh, one of the issues, of course, is that MPs from time to time, particularly on very kind of hot issues, feel intimidated by the whip's office and by you know, fellow uh, members of their own party trying to dissuade them from rebellion. Wouldn't it be a good thing for the independence of MPs if actually they were somewhat remote from these pressures? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, um, it's a really important argument. And people do argue that, uh, that it, you know, MPs are too much guided by the whip. So I always just think that actually, if it weren't for the party ticket that people stood on, there'd be very, very few people in Parliament um, who, who, yeah, who would be there today. Um, if you stand as an independent, as many people have done, you generally don't get elected. It's a political party that people vote for. So, I mean, I think, you know, just at a, at a quite basic level, you do owe the party something. And the other thing is that you stand on the manifesto, you stand on your party's manifesto on a set of promises. Um, and the whips generally are trying to just sort of, you know, make sure that those promises are fulfilled. Obviously not in every detail, but broadly that's what the whips try to do. And so if you're kind of deciding that, you know, that's not for you, um, then actually you're going against something that you stood on at the general election. There are obviously sort of issues of conscience where, you know, you will disagree with the whips and you make the case to the whips and you make people understand why it is that you're voting against them. But it really should be something that's, uh, you know, you, you, it shouldn't be taken lightly when you vote against your party. And I think some people sort of think that actually this is a sort of, you know, individuals going to Parliament and voting with their conscience and just kind of doing what they at that moment think is the right thing. There's a part of that, but really you are there as a representative for a constituency that has voted for you because you have stood on that party's manifesto. And generally your constituency expects you to do that. So you, you argue in your article in the uh, um, online edition of The Critic today that um, actually, uh, ultimately, politics is a team sport and we all have to pull together. And one thing I thought was very interesting was the primacy you give to the House of Commons Tea Room. Uh, many people might think, you know, the, the crucible of debate is the House of Commons Chamber. Uh, but, but actually, it seems to me that, that the, uh, the um, collegiate part of decision making seems to be taking in the tea room. Is, is, that, is that fair? Yeah, I think, I think really the, the point about the tea room is that it's, there's something quite organic about it. It's that, you know, you go into the tea room and you don't know who's going to be there. And you end up talking to people who you may not normally talk to. You tend to have a sort of a group of friends who you hang out with, like in any workplace. Um, but when you go into the tea room, you'll bump into anybody. Um, and that can be from you know, a brand new, newly elected by-election MP. And it can be the prime minister. And you know, in the tea room, it's, it's a real leveler because everybody in the tea room is an MP. So everybody sort of talks to each other in, you know, in the way that MPs talk to each other. And what happens there is that just because generally you're in the tea room because you're waiting to vote, so it's kind of dead time in a way, you end up talking to people and you end up sort of having discussions about ideas that you might otherwise not have had or definitely, I mean, definitely looking back, some of the most interesting conversations I ever had was 
in the team with people that I, you know, started off disagreeing with, but then we'd all talk about what it was like in our constituencies, and, you know, you'd end up finding lots of common ground, and, and that's something that, you know, again, if you're physically not in Parliament, that's not something that can happen. I mean, you know, you can't have random sort of chats with people via Zoom. You have to organise it. You have to set it up. You have to kind of take your turn and speak. You have to be very clear about what it is that you want to say. There's really nothing sort of conversational and, and organic about it in a way that, you know, that where there would be in the tea room. And I think that's something that's that sort of, as you just said, you know, that sort of collegiate nature, that much more consensual way of talking to people is very different from how it is in the chamber. Um, you know, people who you can have kind of some really fruity debates with in the chamber. And um, often if you bump into each other in the tea room, um, you know, you have a cup of tea and you talk it over and everything's fine again. And I think that sort of that personal uh, relationship, it's not necessarily friendship, but that personal relationship that MPs have and that mutual respect is something that's really, really important. And that's something that grows up over sort of days and weeks and months and years of just being with each other and getting to know each other and, and ending up hanging around waiting in the tea room for the latest vote. Um, you uh, speak very fondly about, uh, about Parliament and um, it, it reminds me a little bit though of when television cameras were, were introduced to parliamentary debates and, 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 and at that time there was a, 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 a feeling among some MPs that actually this would discourage uh, participation in debates because MPs would, would sit in their own office uh, watching it on TV whilst whilst getting on with their constituency work, um, yeah. but but, but uh, uh, you know that, that that kind of argument has been proved true in, in a sense, in that you know a lot of MPs do do that, uh, but nevertheless is we are where we are, and, and is that not a, a better solution than either having a very very limited quorum of of MPs? Attending for social distancing, but but the vast majority of MPs being being unable to participate, or would there be a, a, a better way of doing this? I just, I mean, I take your point about TV cameras, and um, and and I and I really don't want to sound like I'm against Zoom in any way. I think it really, you know, and I think um, a virtual way of working really has its place, and it can really add things to sort of certain aspects of Parliament. So one of the things that I think has worked really well has been the select committees. Um, but if you look at what select committees do, they're very, they're already very collegiate, they're very consensual, um, there's really very little sort of party politics in it. Um, and it's a much sort of calmer way of, um, and longer term and much more in-depth way of gathering information, asking questions, waiting and listening for the answers which is very, very different from how a debate is conducted in Parliament. Um, so I think for something like a select committee, um, having Zoom on top of having the meetings and having the physical evidence sessions is really great, and that really adds something. Um, my worry is that if we replace our physical Parliament with a virtual Parliament, that what we lose is very great. It's a, it's, it's a load of stuff. I thought when TV cameras went into the chamber, we really gained something. You know, it kind of gave people a sort of a real look inside the chamber. I also thought, I, I don't know whether you remember, that after um, that Michael Cockrell programme about Inside the Commons, um, what happened after that was the Commons saw what TV cameras at sort of eye level rather than TV cameras sort of looking down from the top. 
and what a difference that made and how that really made people feel like they were actually in the chamber. And since then, they've kind of changed the TV angle and they've got much higher definition. And that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, it really is like being in the chamber. And I think any experience like that kind of brings people closer to their parliament is a really good thing. So I thought the TV cameras was a really was a really brilliant invention, was a, and it's really it's really revolutionised um, how people regard Parliament and the fact that they feel much closer to it. And um, my problem with a virtual, just an exclusively virtual Parliament, is that we lose all of that, and it just becomes very remote, very distant. You're no longer that responsible. You become entirely constituency focused. And of course, you've got to have a constituency focus, but you know, you've got to balance that with the role that you play in scrutinizing uh, government, holding it to account, and actually the work that you do in the constituency. And I think that link would be lost if it was entirely virtual. But my real hope is that actually, after they've done this Zoom experiment, they, they will see what Zoom can add but also what it, what, what it is that we would lose. And I think actually after this, we will appreciate much, much more why having a physical presence in Parliament, why that's really important and why that really matters. Well, Natasha Engel, we'll have to leave it there. Um, we will see how this experiment goes and uh, how much of it remains by hook or by crook uh, after the uh, coronavirus passes, recedes into history. Uh, where we hope it belongs. But thank you very much for, for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Universities are in crisis, to which you may be saying which sector of our country is not in crisis at this time. Uh, but the calls for the bailouts are coming. The fear of students, particularly overseas students, and the finance they bring staying away, it has caused many universities to be in a state of great anguish and concern. Should this be a wider concern to us, or should universities have to cut their coat uh, uh, as best they can? Uh, joining me for the Critic podcast is Professor Jeremy Back, uh, Emeritus Professor of History at Exeter University. Uh, Jeremy, welcome back to the Critic podcast. Hello. Um, so, but before we get to the particular problems that the coronavirus crisis has placed upon universities, um, many people would have thought that uh, the last 20 years have been good times on campus. Um, the level of fees have gone up, the number of students have gone up, uh, and suddenly we find that all is not well. Could you paint for us a picture of what has happened to the finance of universities in, in the UK over the last decade, and why it is they find themselves in, in, in trouble now? Yes, there, there already were many serious problems prior to this current uh, virus. In essence, the decision which was bipartisan, both the Conservatives and Labour supported it, whether that was wise is another question we can discuss, to take uh, roughly half the school-age population to university produced a major period of expansion, as did the extent to which, rather than keeping um, existing institutions that were not universities, colleges of further education, uh, polytechnics, they became universities with degree-issuing uh, powers, so that one ended up with a situation of roughly 160 uh, universities. Now, uh, when you've got that large number, you've got volatility, and I think it's fair to say 
that it would be surprising in any sector, industry, call it what you will, of that number of places not to have some in financial difficulties. And that was already the situation, in part because their expansion plans had been over-optimistic, in part because students were choosing to apply elsewhere. And um, expansion plans optimistic, is that a, a, a positive way of saying mismanagement? Um, I think that there was a degree of mismanagement that rests across the whole of society. I mean, it's always easy to put one's finger on particular institutions, but I think there was a more general uh, issue and problem that uh, people had no real idea about what they anticipated um, to come from this vast expansion. So, for example, the assumption was that it would automatically be better to have three-year degree programs rather than two years the, or, or sandwich courses. The assumption was that it should go on being the case that people should um, live away from home and that this should be the normal practice, which, of course, it isn't across most of the world. And that left a lot of students in debt um, and there was also, uh, with paying the fees in arrears, an enormous, if you like, sort of fraud would be going too far, but, um, you know, sort of cheating of the taxpayer because the, the wide assumption was that much of this money would not, in the end, be repaid. So there were already very serious problems of mismanagement, which I would say was primarily a matter of governmental mismanagement by uh, the governments from really the 1990s onwards. And obviously, um, that has, uh, you know, provided opportunities for um, a certain number of universities to, in a Darwinian sense, try to expand, because if they didn't expand and raise their status, they feared they would decline and cease to be attractive. But the major problem was that government hadn't thought it through. And that was a failure of government policy of, of, of both stripes, the Blair Brown governments and Cameron onwards? Yes, I think the, you know, I'm a Conservative, but I think it's fair to say that the Conservatives didn't really think it through either. They, they came along with the sort of standard phrases which had been used by both the universities and by Labour about a knowledge economy without considering adequately whether the existing provision was actually the best way of providing that and the most efficient way or effective way of providing it in cost terms to government and to society and to the students. So I, I'm afraid to say I think it's one of the many ways in which the faults and flaws one associates uh, with new Labour were sustained by Conservative government. Clearly, this is affecting some universities more, more than others. Can one generalise by saying it's, it's those new universities, particularly those created out of um, colleges and what were polytechnics in the last 25 years, that, that are by and large in crisis? Or actually, are the funding problems much wider than that? 
Funding problems are wider than that. I mean, if, and partly it depends upon whether one's looking at the immediate virus issue. The virus issue, in effect, has hit what you might regard as some of the best universities hardest because there are places, one's thinking of University College London or the London School of Economics or Warwick, which are places of international reputation which, in a sense, fund themselves and therefore, co, um, as it were, co-subsidise, cross-subsidise their UK students by taking in thousands upon thousands of foreign students, particularly Chinese students. So those have been very uh, much hit. And of course, that is of great concern to government because it's the major universities that are the basic sources of the high research uh, outcomes that are greatly beneficial uh, to society, not least in the present crisis. So that is one thing. But I think if you were looking at the longer term funding crisis, partly it's some of the newer institutions, but partly actually it's some of the older institutions which didn't really have an enormous amount going for them other than the fact that they were universities. So shall we say there have been problems in places like Hull or Bradford or Aberystwyth, um, all of which have been hit um, by the expansion of uh, other universities and by not having any particular distinctive status to award insofar as they're giving degrees. So... um uh, things obviously have got much worse for the coronavirus, particularly with regard to the, the, the more elite universities, the research universities. Is this a passing phase, though? I mean, by this time next year, will the international students all be back? And there's just one year's unfortunate uh, funding gap, which will have to be bridged. Or is, is this more... Uh, strategic, more systemic, more long-term? Well, I think it's systemic and long-term. I and mean, I think one of the interesting things is that the crisis is showing that you can do much more uh, provision online, um, and that may you know, prompt the equivalent of an arms race between institutions to move ever-increasing volumes of material online um, with wider recruitment footprint and bigger name universities le leveraging their re reputation and finances to become dominant and um, second and third tier UK institutions, including some of the Russell Group ones, may simply not be able to cope. Also, given the appalling problems posed by, quite frankly, a, a ludicrously Luddite left-wing trade union, online may become the default for teaching delivery uh, and may, in fact, become an em employment model of, of greater effectiveness. Now, this may all sound absolutely horrific to middle-class parents listening there and thinking to themselves, gosh, I went away to university, surely my children should be. But the problem is that so often when people talk about going away to university, they're expecting somebody else to pick up the bill and either the taxpayer through deferred uh, fees or in a sense for some form of trying to get the uh, board uh, you know the maintenance uh, um, subsidized and, and this really is a very expensive process so what we should be looking for is trying to find ways to deliver good and effective teaching which doesn't require people to spend three years living away from home at some considerable expense and you could argue that that latter model has only been sustainable because interest rates are so low. And interest rates being low effect, obviously, pupils and parents borrowing for them to go to university, but also institutions borrowing 
to enable them to keep going with their working capital and also to fund their long-term investment programs. So you could argue that the whole current situation has been is very deeply flawed and that in a sense the crisis represents an opportunity, uh, first of all a need to deal with very short-term issues, but also an opportunity to think to the longer term about how we want the system to be organized. Not, of course, that there's likely to be any such thought by anybody apart from the universities who will all scream plus the staff plus the students for more money. Um, But actually, more money is, whilst it may be a short-term palliative, is not really a substitute for long-term thought about issues, as I discussed in my piece in The Critic, issues such as considering uh, how far we're going to expect three-year residential universities to remain the norm, um, considering how best to fund uh, postgraduate and the research side as opposed to sort of bread and butter undergraduate courses. And, you know, before somebody shouts at me about Matthew Arnold and the idea of the university, I'm not sure that a lot of the degree courses now being offered or the nature of the teaching of them would match Matthew Arnold's idea of the university, or indeed the Robbins Report's idea in the 1960s. So I think one needs to be very clear-minded about this. You know, a certain amount of the provision is not what we would regard as, as an adequate way for people to spend three years. So I think that that element needs to be considered. And there's also the question in a crowded island of real estate. Universities are sitting on a lot of city centre and near city centre real estate, if there is less of a need for the residential component for higher education, it may well be the case that some of that real estate could be actually used to finance change in the sector uh, without it needing to be a drain on the central exchequer. So I think that is something that can really be considered and maybe some of the institutions pressing very hard for relief at the moment should be asked about what they are doing to try and achieve greater value out of their real estate, including maybe selling or releasing it. Not necessarily a good moment at the moment, but something they should be thinking about over the next five years. So I think there are very difficult questions. I'm not sure that, quite frankly, the sector is the best place to work them out, but then I'm not actually sure who else has the capacity, either intellectual or otherwise, to think about it, how best to do it. As I understand it, part of the idea is to move about 20 or 30 institutions towards less Uh, higher education and more uh, further education and the politics is that the government doesn't want any institutional failure this summer but a a sort of medium term move of several institutions out of the system I think those are perfectly worthy goals but I think that's got to be realistic here unless there's really some strong push by the government the delay factor in terms of university governance uh, in terms of the trade union in terms of the natural process of atrophy would probably be to delayed. There's a lot to unpack in what you've just said and I wonder if I may just hone in on two aspects. One uh, the the, um, release of some assets particularly real estate, that that implies a shrinking in the size of the university, certainly the student body uh, and that could be achieved in one of two ways. It it could be more home students uh, or it it could be just a, a smaller university. Uh, in terms of its enrolment, and 
that begs all sorts of questions about therefore reversing what has been the the the, the, the revenue raising policy of the last twenty or so years, which is you know the the, the more students the the, the more money. Um, but uh, secondly, uh, when you talk about you know rethinking the package that a university offers. Um, you know, more online uh, lectures and so on. I, I mean, could that ultimately just devalue, though, what a university is? If it's really just a degree-awarding body and a lot of the actual coursework is done online, I, I mean, um, people might as well just sit on YouTube watching TEDx lectures and, and getting their knowledge that way without the, the expense and trouble of going to university. Well, um, let's just take the last one. There are three real uh, components that one's talking about, research, postgraduate education, and undergraduate education. The most numerous is undergraduate education. Probably from the point of view of the country as a whole, research, as we're seeing in the present crisis, is the most important. And postgraduate education at the international level is the biggest income earner. So I'm not sure that necessarily if one is talking about significant changes that you are actually throwing away the value of a university. University. Second, as we're seeing at the present crisis, there is a lot of online teaching. And whilst, as I said, people like yourself and myself, we're slightly different in age, but we're both people that went through a system that was much more benign in many sense to students, think it's obviously an axiomatical thing that one benefits enormously for three years away. The question is, whom is going to pay for it? And particularly when you're talking about such a large portion of the population, which was not the situation when we were there. So I'm not sure I would accept quite um, your sort of stark divides. And one could end actually at the last point, just simply that you've made. If students do not wish to actually avail themselves of the opportunities, then probably they shouldn't be at university. And that is not doing any good to have people going to university on that background if it's simply enabling a government of any stripe to fulfil some kind of quota of opportunity and a university to balance its books. And I'm not sure that that is achieving purposes, and I think most people know that. Um, they may not wish to discuss it publicly, but I think most people know that. Now, now, as far as your other specific point is concerned on real estate, um, no, I don't think necessarily that selling some of the real estate would mean that you would necessarily be reducing the number of home students. You might be reducing the number of students who are living away from home, which is not quite the same thing, but equally, quite a few universities um, could, uh, particularly neighbouring universities, Hull and Humberside, Northumbria and Newcastle, could actually look to have a degree of merger. And you could think about, shall we say, whether you need the same degree of backup services, whether you need the same degree of administrative services, and whether you always need the same degree of staff to teach, um, to teach big courses. I'm not sure that you always do do so. And... Um, you're obviously idealizing small group teaching, which is marvelous, but most, if you can afford it, but most institutions don't do it anyway um, at the undergraduate level. So I think one has to be wary of establishing that as a model. And again, I, as I mentioned earlier, we need to think about what this situation is going to look like when the real cost of money rises for both students and government, and also when there is going to be probably um, a more parlous economic background. And I think from that context, it doesn't help 
to be thinking about what is probably not sustainable for most students. And which is less sustainable, the number of universities or, or, the, or the size of the universities that, that we already have? Um, well, I certainly don't think we necessarily need the number of universities. After all, you have effective number, you have effective universities that are quite big uh, in Britain, and one can think of Manchester, for example, and you have many universities that are far smaller than that. So you, you inherently, you don't need to have universities at any one set size, and that may well provide an opportunity to think about rationalisation. As far as the number of students are concerned, the number of undergraduate students are concerned, um, I'm not sure that it is helpful to think of shoehorning into a system people that don't inherently want to go and might not inherently derive value just in order to match and meet some kind of expectation of the percentage that ought to go. So from that point of view, I don't think that there is a set percentage or number, and nor do I think that it is really necessarily desirable to uh, force people to go to particular institutions in order to keep those institutions going if what they are offering are courses which many students do not want to do. I mean, I think if there are courses that are clearly strategically in the national interest, and we see that already with medicine, and you and we see that with the so-called, um, you know, the other so-called STEM subjects in science and technology, engineering, and you might argue that we should see that in some of the modern languages. I think there is an argument for keeping those subjects with specific grants to encourage people to do those subjects. I can't quite see the logic of encouraging yet more people to do a subject like law, for example. So, in essence, the coronavirus crisis may be just bringing on a, a situation which was not only inevitable but desirable. It may be that, that some universities or within the universities some departments uh, fail and that the government should ride out the political storm and let them fail. Uh, well, yes, I don't think it will. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that that's the last thing it is going to do. And I think that what we're going to do is limp on from crisis to crisis. I mean, had we been having this discussion six months ago, we would have been talking about the way in which the union, of which many academics are not members, that the union, because it was unwilling to um, think through changes on the pension scheme, was actually producing a very poor service for students. I mean, it's rather funny at the moment to think that academics who, are, who were on strike, not all academics were, plus um, student, National Union of Student People who were actually not criticising the strike, um, are now telling us that it's absolutely outrageous that the system may be in greater difficulties. And so I do think people need to really consider the context. We would probably be better off if we had universities that were in effect independent, uh, universities that in a sector which understood that there are going to be failures and the need to rationalise, that when you're rationalising you have to look after the students, but that they may have to accept they have to move institution. Um, and we, sh you know, those that there should be more two-year degrees, more sandwich degrees. We probably need all of that. The chance of that coming through at the present moment, I don't think very much, because most people who are stakeholders have done quite well. Very much, thank you very much from defending the existing system. But 
that, you know, I think you and I have enough understanding of its flaws to know that that is not providing the best service to the students nor the best service to the country. And finally, Professor Black, how soon will this crisis break? Uh, by which I mean, how soon will uh, universities say bail out now or we go under? Oh, I think that, I mean, palliatives will be found to stop them going bust, but I'm not sure that that is sensible by any means, and I think it was just a case of sticking plaster. I've been talking to Professor Jeremy Black, uh, Emeritus Professor at the University of Exeter. Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us. A pleasure. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.